Zechariah. We've been moving through Zechariah. So two of our elders have been going through 1 Samuel, Pastor Tim, Pastor Mark. And uh, then I've been going through Zechariah. And here we are towards the end of the book. We're in chapter 10 this morning. We'll look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 12. Zechariah chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. It's page 749 if you're looking at one of our hardback Bibles there. It'll be helpful if you're looking at a copy of God's Word as we move through. There's an outline inside the worship guide that's got the main points of the sermon that we think are from the text. So if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on, that's there for you. Zechariah 10, verses 1 through 12. We, we won't read the entire passage up front, but let me read the first verse because it's, it's easy to translate it into a question that'll really help to kind of prime us to, to look at the rest of this chapter. So look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And there Zechariah says, Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. Okay, now the question for us to think about is, who do I ask for rain? So here it says, come to the Lord to ask for rain. So the question up front, before we look at the rest of this passage, who is it that you go to, to ask for rain? Who do I ask for rain? Now, we understand because of technology and the way that our food gets to us and that sort of thing, we aren't as dependent on rain. We would be extra thankful. We wouldn't have just been bummed out like me this morning to get rained on because we haven't had rain in a while. We would have been really, really thankful. But you understand what I'm saying. And in our context, when trouble comes in this life, who do you turn to, right? So who do you ask for rain from in that way? Who do you turn to? There's lots of different options our world gives us, right? So you might turn to, to money or to physical pleasure, or to your family, or social media, or your friends, your job, your hobbies. But that's the question, where do you turn? And more important, what our passage answers for us, where should you turn for that kind of help? Well, in Zechariah's day, the, the southern kingdom of God's people, what are called Judah, they'd been brought back to the promised land from exile, and, and they're in the promised land, but like we've talked about several weeks in a row, there's still all sorts of difficulty that's surrounding God's people. So they've, they've got lots of hardship. And the Lord knows that because they've got a lot of hardship, they'll be tempted to turn to other shepherds aside from him to, to try to fill those needs. But the message of Zechariah 10 is that God is the only shepherd who can provide for our needs. That every other knockoff shepherd will, will fail us. And our passage begins by pointing out two kinds of shepherds who will undoubtedly fail us. And, and these are the, the first two points that we'll look at this morning. They're listed there in the outline. And then God will tell us about the way that he will shepherd us if we come to him. So, so our first point this morning, who can't shepherd us? Who are the shepherds? He says, don't follow them. Well, the first one is cultural prognosticators can't shepherd you. Look at verse two. He says, for the household gods utter nonsense and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Okay, what, what God's warning his people against here is prognosticators, which is just a fancy word for people that think they can discern the future. People that think they can discern the future, God says, don't go to them for shepherding. Now, he starts out with a form of that that isn't really popular or, or common in our culture. 
which is seeking to know the future through idols, which are just fake gods, right? Metal statues, wood statues. That's what he means in verse 2 with that term, household gods. So the nations around Israel had all sorts of fake gods. And a lot of them, they would make idols, like little statues that would actually look like a person that are made of metal, made of wood. They would keep those in their homes and they would worship them. But then also they would try to discern the future from these gods. And we don't know what that looked like on the ground, right? In terms of how would they try to figure something out? Okay, is it going to rain next week? What are they looking for from that wooden statue to help them discern that? We don't know that, but they thought that the future was given to them sometimes through these idols. And God's people are in the middle of these nations and they are being tempted to do the same thing, to have these little household gods that they try to discern the future from these gods. But, but the one true God, he's been really clear with his people ever since he saved them out of Egypt, they shouldn't have any fake gods. In fact, this is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we want to be sure that we understand this. God isn't saying there are other gods, right, that are rivals to him, and he's just the best one. That's not what the Lord is saying. No, listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, Paul says, We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. So there's no rival gods. There's only one God, but that truth hasn't stopped mankind from creating fake gods all throughout human history. And it looks like the, the purpose of these household gods again, and in part, was to tell the future. And, and we can understand why that's appealing, right? Why that would be appealing for God's people. Because they're thinking, what if there's even a chance that this fake God maybe has some reality to it and it can tell me the future? So you can see the draw. You know, God's people at this point, they had lots of questions. You know, is the temple going to be reconstructed? It's under construction, but is it going to be finished? They wondered about that. Is another nation just going to come in and knock it down again, like the Babylonians did 100 years ago? Is God going to bring back the rest of our people that aren't here yet? But there were lots of questions that they had. And so the temptation of, hey, if you'll just ask these statues, these gods, you can have it in your house, you can ask it this question, that would be an appealing thing. In fact, I think that that could be even a draw for us. If we honestly thought we could get the future from something like that, it'd at least be a temptation. But what God makes clear is those idols, they can't come through. They cannot deliver on that promise. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, for the household gods utter nonsense. That word could also be translated as emptiness. It's the one that shows up in Ecclesiastes over and over again, vanity. It's like a mist. It's, it's nothing that you can grab a hold of. It's emptiness. It's nonsense. So, so why is it nonsense? The future that supposedly comes through these idols? Well, even our children, I think, could answer this. It's because they're fake. The idols aren't real. That's why they can't provide the future. So like I said, a lot of these idols were actually fashioned to look like in, in the image of man. So they had eyes and noses and ears. Listen to what God says. Listen to the sarcasm from the Lord about idols in Psalm 115. He says, idols are the work of human hands. So they're not really divine. They're the work of human hands. Listen to what the Lord says. They have mouths, but do not speak. 
eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. So no prediction about the future that's drawn from these inanimate objects is anything because these inanimate objects aren't anything. They're, they're not real. Now we can think to ourselves like, man, those silly Israelites, you know, being tempted to go to these wooden statues to tell them the future. What, what a silly thing. But see, then the Lord moves on to mention another kind of prognosticator that I think we're more tempted by, even in this room. So look at the second line in verse two. He says, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Okay, so who are the diviners? Um, sounds like, like a, a musical group, right? From Motown, the diviners. That's not what it is. Who are the diviners? Well, those are people who, who said that through the help of spirits, they could discern the future. That's who diviners were. So in Deuteronomy 18.10, it, uh, it compares them to fortune tellers. So that's who they were. It was sort of that day and age version of, of a fortune teller. And again, we, we can understand the appeal. You know, think of what you could do if you had access to the future. If you could know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or, or in a month, you could, you could buy or sell a house or buy or sell a stock at exactly the right time, right? If, if you knew what was coming, you'd know where the economy's headed. You'd know where world events are headed. It's pretty appealing, isn't it? If somebody said to you, hey, here's this crystal ball, look in here and you can see some of these things. I think all of us would be tempted to do that. And, and isn't that why we're oftentimes drawn to certain cultural commentators? Now, none of the people we're drawn to, none of them are attributing it, I hope they aren't, to evil spirits to help them see the future. But we have a lot of people in our culture that are telling us, hey, I can tell you what's going to happen. Listen to my counsel. I've discerned it. I've figured it out. We have no shortage of folks like that. So we could be tempted to go to this commentator or this media outlet or this editorial board. They know what's coming. And so we, we go to the cable news or the paper or the website with confidence that we're going to be given a reliable message about what's coming in, in the future. Well, the Lord knew this kind of thinking would regularly be appealing to his people in, in Zechariah's day too. But look at what the Lord says about their cultural prognosticators. Second line of verse two, he says, the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. What he's saying is no human knows what's gonna happen in the future. Not one, none of us do. So, so whatever the diviners of Zechariah's day thought they were seeing, it wasn't the real future. It was a lie, he says. Their dreams are false. They, they didn't know what the future held. And that made it all the worse when they offered comfort to God's people, because that was something that would happen regularly. God's people would go to them to say, hey, what's coming? What's going to happen? And oftentimes these diviners would say, oh, it's going to turn out fine. That nation's not going to attack you. God's not displeased with you because of this sin or that sin. Everything, everything is going to be okay. And again, they didn't know that. That's why in the middle of verse 2, the Lord, call, the Lord calls that empty consolation. 
empty concept. They're trying to console God's people, but it's empty because they don't know what's going to happen. They can't say this bad thing isn't going to happen because they don't know. It's empty consolation. And just a side note here, let's be sure that as Christians, we don't offer empty consolation. So, so there are times when, when a fellow believer will be sick, and you may be so tempted to say, oh, we know you'll get better. We can be sure that you'll get better. We don't know that. We don't know the future. That's empty consolation. Or maybe, maybe one of your kids really doesn't like their school. And as a parent, you'll be so tempted to say, hey, I promise in a year things will be better. I promise you. You can't promise them that. That's empty consolation. Instead, let, let's say something like, hey, we'll, we'll keep praying for healing and we'll trust the Lord with that because he's good. Or we'll say something like, only the Lord knows for sure, but I think there's a good chance you'll like school more in, in a year. As Christians, we, we should be experts at knowing that we are not God, right? When we declare the future, that says that we think we are like God. But no, as Christians, we're, we're experts at knowing that we're not God. So, so let's not declare the future like only God can. But these diviners among Israel, they were declaring the future, left and right. And again, we see the same thing in our culture. We, we have no shortage of prognosticators who claim to know the future. If you pay attention to, to politics in the upcoming presidential election, just open one article, listen to one news program, you will hear lots of guarantees. This is definitely what's going to happen, or this is definitely what's not going to happen. But of course, they don't know. Listen to what we're taught about predicting the future in James chapter 4, verse 13 and following. James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it, then we will live and do this that so only the lord knows the future right the pundit on cable news doesn't the columnist doesn't the famous pastor doesn't Pe people who predict the future can't shepherd you and, and look at what happens when god's people rely on that kind of shepherding last line of verse two therefore the people wander like sheep they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd so cultural prognosticators, they, they can't shepherd us. But God goes on to give a second group that can't shepherd us. Verse 3, he says, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. Looks like he's talking about both those groups. It sounds like he's talking about the, a single group, two different names, the shepherds, the leaders. And that makes sense. That's what leaders are supposed to do is shepherd people. Well, the Lord is angry with these leaders. And it's, it's our second main point. Bad leaders can't shepherd you. Like we mentioned last week, Israel had had their share of bad leaders. So Saul, we saw, we've seen it in 1 Samuel. Saul was a bad leader. David, oftentimes a great leader, sometimes a really bad leader. Solomon, a really good leader, except for the times at the end of his uh, kingship in particular, when he was a really bad leader. 
And then the kings after Solomon were almost all horrible. And by the time Zechariah is prophesying here, God's people have been under the rule of other nations for a hundred years, and those kings didn't even claim to love the Lord. So they had been under bad leaders for a long time. So I say all that to say this, it doesn't seem like the Lord is trying to convince his people that bad leaders can't shepherd them. They, they certainly would know that. Instead, it looks like the Lord is simply encouraging them with the fact that he too is angry about their bad leaders. He says that, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish their leaders. And when governing leaders are bad, they deserve God's anger. Good for us to remember, because the thing is, whether they, the leaders, whether governing leaders like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, they work for the Lord. Governing leaders work for the Lord. This is exactly what God's word teaches them and teaches us. This is Romans 13, 4. The governing authorities are God's servant for your good. So Joe Biden works for the Lord. Roy Cooper, who we just prayed for, works for the Lord. Chief Justice John Roberts works for the Lord. The members of your town council work for the Lord. That's what Romans 13 just told us. And God tells them and us what they are supposed to do as the governing authorities. Here it is, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. Those who govern are supposed to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. They're supposed to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That's what a good leader is. And, and when our leaders do the opposite, when they praise evil and when they punish good, then they're doing the exact opposite of what their master has told them to do. So, so when a president praises the rejection of gender, that's the opposite of what the Lord has, has told him or her to do. When, when a senator opposes the church's right to preach Bible verses about homosexuality, that's, that's the opposite of what God has told him or her to do. When, when a governor supports abortion, that's the opposite of what God has told him or her to do. When a judge refuses, refuses to leverage the death penalty for murder, that's the opposite of what the Lord has told him or her to do. Verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. So bad leaders make the Lord mad. But, but what we have to remember is we're not ultimately being shepherded by human leaders. It's, it's significant when they do a bad job, but for the Christian, a bad leader isn't going to, to break us, right? In fact, the, the Lord tells us, he doesn't just say, don't put your hope in bad human leaders. The Lord actually says, don't put your hope in human leaders at all, good or bad. Psalm 146, verse 3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. So God gives leaders to human societies for a good purpose, but, but those human leaders aren't sufficient to shepherd us the way the Lord can. Human government, it's a good gift. It's a horrible God. It'll let us down every time. To, to use the imagery from verse 1, don't ask rain from your human leaders. So bad leaders can't, can't shepherd you, but we need shepherding. 
Like, like the end of verse 2 says, people wander like sheep and are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. So we looked at two places that can't shepherd us. So who can? Where are we supposed to go for shepherding? The next phrase tells us, verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. So the Lord is our shepherd. We saw that this morning in the call to worship, Psalm 23, right? But probably the most well-known verse in the Old Testament, I would think at least one of them. The Lord is our shepherd. So, so what does that mean God will do for you? He's your shepherd. What are the good things he's shepherding you to? Well, our passage gives us four secondary things that, that we're going to look at in a second. But, but those secondary things all come because of a primary thing. This is listed on the outline. And the primary thing is God is the good shepherd who shepherds you to Jesus. That's the main thing God takes us to. He shepherds us to Jesus. Look at verse 6, this promise God makes in our passage in verse 6. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. So remember, a lot of God's people were back in the promised land at this point in Zechariah, but all of them weren't. There were still a lot that were scattered around and God's making a promise here that eventually they'll all be brought back. It's the same kind of promise he makes back in chapter 8, verse 7. And there he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So God's promising he's going to bring all his people back to live in his place under his rule. But, but remember why they needed to be brought back in the first place. God took them to the promised land initially, right? So if somebody just heard about God saving them out of Egypt, bringing them to the promised land, and then skips forward to Zechariah, they would probably have this question. Well, wait, why are they not in the promised land? God brought them there. Why are they gone? Some of them are back, but why aren't all of them back? It's because of their sin, right? They had been exiled. They had been sent out of the promised land because of their sin. Israel had spent hundreds of years in unrepentant sin against the Lord. That's why he eventually judged them. Has the Assyrians and the Babylonians come in, destroy Jerusalem, take them away. But, but even back in the promised land, their sin, their past sin remains. So when we first moved here, I don't know, it was probably the first month we were here. I'm in the parking lot. I'm about to pull out in my car. I had a cup of coffee and I thought this coffee's going to spill. I need to put the lid on this coffee. So I look down to put the lid on my coffee as I'm turning around in the parking lot and I bump into one of the signs and the sign's fine. But the bumper of my car got scratched and underneath the black paint on my CRV is white. So there's just this big white scrape there that's on the, the front bumper. Well, that happened a year and a half ago, but I still have that mark on my bumper. You can look at it after church if you want to. People ask me about it because I bumped into a sign. Well, well, God's people, they still have the marks of sin all over them. Those past sins don't magically go away. God doesn't all of a sudden ignore them. No, they had sinned for hundreds and hundreds of years. Those, those marks are still there. But see, God's plan is to have the promised land be pure with no sin. You remember? That's what the imagery of chapter 5, verse 5 through 11 was all about. You remember where God gives that picture of the basket? 
where it says he'll take all the sin in the promised land and stuff it in this basket, and then birds will fly it away. There won't be any sin in the promised land. So how does that work? How can God's people who are sinners be brought back to the promised land where God tells us there won't be any sin? Well, verse 6 tells us it's because in God's compassion for them, he's going to treat them as if they hadn't sinned against him. So in verse 6, we're told, they shall be as though I had not rejected them. Okay, but how can God do that? How can he treat sinners as if they had not sinned? He hints down, or he hints at it down in verse 8. That's where he says, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. Okay, so we're putting the pieces together. God can treat these sinners as if they had not sinned because of a work of redemption that the Lord does. He had redeemed them, we're told. Now that word redeemed, that just means to purchase something through a payment, right? So in the ancient Near East, when, when Zechariah is prophesying, you could redeem a prisoner of war by giving money to the opposing nation, saying, we'll give you this much money if you'll release this prisoner. They redeemed him, right? They purchased him with a price. Today, you could redeem a gallon of gas at Sheets Next Door after the service. We pay a price and we get something for it. So, so who paid the price for God's people to come back to the promised land? Well, it, it was the Lord. He says, for I have redeemed them. So he's the one who paid the price to save his people. What we learn as the Bible moves along is that that price wouldn't it really be paid for another 500 years? So listen to what Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says about God redeeming his people. Hebrews 9, verse 15. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So they'll be in the promised land. And this is why Hebrews 9, 15, since... A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So God had brought his people back to the promised land here in Zechariah, but the, the payment for their sins, that payment wouldn't happen until the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus's death was the death that occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You saw that same language of redemption with Christ in Galatians 3.13. Do you remember? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus paid the price for the sins that we committed. He, his blood, his life on the cross redeemed us. That was the payment it took. That's how the Lord has redeemed us. There's a hint of this in Zechariah 12, verse 10. We'll see that in a couple of weeks when the Lord talks about him whom they have pierced. That was the price to redeem us. That was the price to get God's people back in the promised land. That's the price to get us into the promised land is Jesus's life. He was pierced. That was the payment. His blood stands in the place of our blood. He paid for our sins. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, you can have this redemption because it's not you that has to pay the price. See, it would be hard if it was you that had to pay the price. You'd have to come up with your own moral effort, 
turn your life around, right? Get, get right with the Lord, you would say, and then maybe you could offer that price to the Lord. But that's not the gospel. It's not the Christian gospel. No, the Christian gospel is that God puts the price up for you. It's Jesus's work. All we do is come to the Lord as poor beggars. All we do is come to the Lord and say, I don't have a thing. You pull your pockets out to show I have nothing. I have an empty bank account. When it comes to morality and justifying goodness before God, we have nothing. That's the cost, is to recognize the fact that you're destitute, have nothing. And the Lord offers it for us. That's what Christ did. If you're interested as a non-Christian about thinking about that more, talking about that more, come and find me. Send me an email. My email address is on the back of the worship guide. Send me an email. Let's talk about those things. That's the redemption that's offered to us. And if you're a Christian, that's the reason you will be in the promised land one day. The reason you get to know the Lord is because he redeemed you with the blood of Christ. So God's the good shepherd. He has shepherded you to Jesus. But now these other four things we're going to look at, we need to remember what Ephesians 1.3 teaches us. All the blessings that we get as Christians come through Jesus Christ. So God shepherds us to Christ, and we get all these other things. So let's look at these four benefits as we close. These four benefits left in our passage. First, through Christ, God shepherds you to provision and protection. Look again at the way our passage opens, verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. So God's redeemed people were told to ask for rain. Now, obviously, that was a life or death ask for people in an agrarian culture, right? But they're supposed to come to the Lord to prevent that famine. They're supposed to reach out and ask for rain from him, and, and, and he'll provide rain, he says. He will give them showers of rain. And we're told God responds to that prayer because their sins have been covered. So there's a connection there between your sins being covered and then the Lord responding to you in ways like this. Look at the middle of verse 6. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, so their sins will be forgiven, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. So God answers his people because their sin is no longer a barrier between them and him. And as Christians, our sin is no longer a barrier between us and the Lord. And what that means is, in Philippians 4, 6, Paul can tell us, let your requests be made known to God. So as his child through faith in Christ, he wants you to pray to him. He wants you to ask for provision from him, and he pays attention to those prayers. 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So by way of application, if you're a Christian, how often do you pray for help? How often do you pray for help? Is God the first one you go to when you're worried about something or when you have a need? He should be, right? We heard it in our congregational reading this morning, John, uh, James 4, 2. You do not have because you do not ask. So when you've got a health concern, pray to God for help. When there's a sin that you feel like you just can't get past, you keep sinning in the same way, pray to God for help. When your hot water heater goes out and you're worried about the money in your account to cover it, 
go to God and pray for help. When as a parent, you're in a situation where you don't know what to do to parent your children faithfully, pray for help. Like verse one says, God is the one who makes the storm clouds. So come to him for provision. But he also shepherds us to, to a particular form of provision, which is protection. We need protection and God gives it. Look at the promise he makes to the people here in Zechariah 10 in verse five. He says, they shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. So God's saying a day's coming where his people will have their enemies under their feet. Nobody will be able to attack them any longer. He's pointing forward to that day. God shepherds his people to protection. And one way he proves that he will protect them, he calls them mem their memory back to the exodus out of Egypt. Look at verse 11 toward the end of our passage. And there the Lord says, he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. You remember this? Kids, you guys remember this? This is when God's people, he's saving them out of Egypt and Pharaoh's army is pursuing them and the Red Sea is in front of them and God's people are trapped. The army's coming behind, the Red Sea's in front of them. They have nowhere to go. You remember what God does? He splits the sea in half. He lifts up the walls of the ocean and they get to pass forward on dry ground. He says here, the Nile shall be dried up. He's reminding his people, do you remember what I've done for you? I've protected you. I'll keep protecting you. And as a Christian, God will protect you too. Hebrews 13, five, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. So you have nothing to fear because the God who has redeemed you with the blood of Christ will ultimately protect you. Now, this doesn't mean nothing bad will ever happen to you, right? We know that from our own experience, but the word tells us that as well. That's, that's not what this means. It doesn't even mean you won't lose your physical life. If Christ doesn't return soon, many of us in here will lose our physical lives, right? What this promise means that God will protect you, it means you won't lose your spiritual life. That's the promise we have. Another way to say it, you won't lose God. You'll never lose God. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the kind of confidence that we can have. God will provide for us. He does it in Christ. Well, another good thing the Lord shepherds you to is, is good leaders. Not only protection and provision, but also good leaders. Inside of Christ, God shepherds you to good leaders. So we're told in verse 3, God's angry with bad leaders. But that doesn't mean he scraps human leadership and just says, oh, some of them are going to be bad, so I'm not going to give any human leaders. No, it just means God provides his people with good leaders. Look at verses 3 and 4. And there he says, my anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders.
For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. This is a promise God is making about giving good leaders to his people. So he, he says the rulers that he'll provide, he gives two pictures here. He says they'll be like a cornerstone for a building, and they'll be like a peg for a tent. Both those things did, did the same, they served the same function. The cornerstone keeps all the other stones in place, right? The tent peg, I don't camp. I praise the Lord for it. Some of you guys probably camp, but I can imagine. If you camp, there's times it's windy, the tent could blow away. Our house has never blown away. The hotel rooms we stay in have never blown away. Praise the Lord. But if you stay in a tent, it could blow away. Well, you use a peg. Israel would use a peg to hold down the tent so it didn't blow away. What God is saying is the leaders he'll give his people will provide stability. They'll provide stability, firmness for the people. Now, we know the best leader God provides is Jesus Christ. It's what we looked at last week, chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Jesus is our, our perfect king, our perfect ruler, our perfect shepherd. He'll never let us down. But even though God gives Jesus to his church, he still gives human leaders too. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, Jesus is called the chief shepherd. Or interestingly enough, it could be translated the senior pastor. So if you guys could do this if you want to. You don't have to. But if somebody asks you, who's the senior pastor of your church? Well, according to 1 Peter 5, it's actually Jesus Christ. The, the language couldn't be more explicit. The chief shepherd, the senior pastor is not Scott Daniel. The senior pastor is, is Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter 5 says he's the chief shepherd. However, 1 Peter 5, 2 goes on to talk about how God has still given us human shepherds, human under shepherds we could talk about, under the chief shepherd who is Christ. And, and these leaders, these shepherds in the New Testament are called elders or overseers or pastors. Those three terms are used interchangeably for one office. In, in God's providence, he appoints these under shepherds to lead his local churches. And he does that for our good. It's a good gift that he gives us to give us human leaders in the church. We, we all need human pastors who have a measure of authority in our lives. So we don't just think that we're in charge of everything on our own and we don't need help from anybody. It's not even that God just gives us fellow church members to say, hey, think about doing this. God knows we need more than that. We need leaders who have actual God-given authority over us who can say, no, don't do that. The word says, the Bible says, do it this way. And I can say that for myself too. Praise the Lord. The only difference is most people sitting in this room have four pastors. If you're a member of this church, I don't have four. I have three, but I have three pastors. I have Tim and Charlie and Mark, and I praise the Lord for it. And I'm charged by the Lord to submit myself to their shepherding. First Peter chapter five, verse five tells us, be subject to the elders. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Okay, so the Lord just told us, obey your elders. Why? Because your elders are shepherding your souls. They're watching over your soul and they'll have to give an account. So, so hopefully, if you've got a good doctor, hopefully you do what your doctor says to do to protect your body. You should do what your elders tell you to do according to the word to protect your soul. We need good leaders. And, and praise God, that's what he's given to his churches. And, and this is one of the main arguments for, for a kind of formal church membership. You might be a member in this church and you're happy to be a member, but you've wondered like, why, why do we need this? Like, why the formality? Why do we need to have church members? Well, it's because it's the Bible makes it clear that Christians need specific, identifiable leaders who they are responsible to follow. The Bible assumes that Christians should have that. Specific, identifiable leaders who they are responsible to follow. And the Bible lets us know as pastors that we need specific, identifiable Christians who we are responsible to lead. Human leaders in the church are, are a good gift. Now, that doesn't mean everyone who's called a pastor is a good gift from God, right? We all have stories about that. We hear stories about that from other places. No, Jesus tells us there'll be wolves among the sheep. There'll be wolves who sneak in, but their fruit will show that they're not a real pastor. They'll be able to be identified, or they should be at least. But praise God, I can speak for three of the pastors here because I've gotten to know them well over the past year and a half. The pastors at this church are true pastors, godly men. And God gives us good leaders to help shepherd us. Verse four again, from him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, and from him every ruler, all of them together. So through Christ, God shepherds you to good leaders. But next in Christ, God shepherds you to holiness. He shepherds you to holiness. He's, he's working to actually make you more holy in your life. Look over at verse 12. And they were told, I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. So God promises his people from Judah will walk in his name. Okay, so what's that mean? They will walk in his name. Well, it means they'll live their life in a way that fits with the character of the Lord. That's what it means. They'll walk in his name. They'll live their life in a way that fits with the character of the Lord. And verse 12 makes it clear it's ultimately God's work. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. God's the one who will work this holy character in his people. And he makes the same promise to us in Christ. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what it tells us about Jesus. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. So it's the Lord who purifies us, who makes us more and more holy, zealous for good works. And that's what God wants for you. He wants you to turn away from more sin this coming week than you did this past week. And he wants you to love him more and love others more this coming week than you did this past week. And he is working in you toward that purpose. Verse 12, I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. 
God shepherds us to holiness. Now, this is not always a pleasant experience. Sometimes this hurts. Look at verse 9 in our passage. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. Okay, why had God scattered his people? It was because of their sin. He was disciplining them. God disciplines his people. He does the same to us, doesn't he? And it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts. God oftentimes lets us feel the effects of our sin, doesn't he? And that hurts when that happens. Sometimes he brings us into difficult circumstances to strengthen our grip on Jesus. But that hurts. But here's what we're told in Hebrews 12, verse 6 and verse 10. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. So if you're a Christian, God does whatever he needs to do to make you holier. Praise God for that. Now, by way of application, what should our response to that be? Well, knowing that God is working on this task in us, we should work for that task as well. Let's work with God as he is doing that thing in us. Look back at verse 5. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. That's a good verse to remember this week when you're fighting against sin. Fight against sin because the Lord is with you. Isn't that good? Fight against sin because the Lord is with you. So God is with you in the fight against jealousy and discontentment. When you look at somebody else and you think, oh, they have all these things. I'd be happy if I only had those things. Fight against that sin because God is with you. He's with you in the fight against lust, so fight against that sin. He, he's with you in the fight against idolizing your family, so fight against that sin. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. So in Christ, God shepherds you to holiness. But finally, in Christ, he shepherds you to heaven. This is really what matters most, right? If God gave us every good blessing in this life, but then when you die, you're separated from God for all eternity, what good is that? Not much good. But no, thankfully, our God's too good for that. He's promised heaven to his people. Look at what he says about his scattered people through Zechariah in verse 10. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon until there is no room for them. He's using the same imagery he used back in chapter 2, you remember, where he said, I'm going to save so many people that we can't have walls around Jerusalem because the city will be too big. You won't be able to measure the thing. It'll be so full of God's people, the borders can't even be measured. He's talking about the heavenly city, what Paul calls the heavenly Jerusalem. What the author of Hebrews calls the Jerusalem from above. In our passage, in our passage, the Lord is pointing forward to heaven. And the promise is that he will shepherd his people there. You can be sure of it. Listen to part of our New Testament reading from this morning, John 10, verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. So Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. For those folks inside of Israel that God had determined to save, those folks outside of Israel, which includes the people in this room, that God decided to save. Jesus laid down his life for us. And for those folks who he came and died for, he will shepherd us home. John 10, verse 28, Jesus says, I will give them, so my sheep, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, why would we entrust ourselves to any other shepherd in this life other than this good shepherd? Can, can our medical doctor get us to heaven? No. Can, can the politician or the journalist make you more holy? Can your group of friends or, or your family or your children or grandchildren, can, can they give you the exact human leaders you need? Can your career or hobbies give you perfect provision and protection? No other shepherd can care for us the way that Jesus can. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for this picture of the gospel and of the shepherd who is our savior, Jesus. We understand that we will be regularly called to trust in the shepherding of created things, of people in this world. That'll happen to us even this afternoon, Father. We pray that we would be thankful for the good gifts of creation, but, but Father, that we would understand nothing in this world can shepherd us faithfully. They'll all let us down. The only one that can shepherd us faithfully and fully is Jesus Christ. Would you help us put our full hope and confidence in him to the praise of your glory? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.